0: You're listening to T.I.P.
1: Hey, everyone, welcome to our Wednesday release of the show where we're talking about Bitcoin. Today's guest is a good friend and person I've been following for years, Mr. Charles Edwards. Charles is a quant investor and the creator of a popular trading metric called Hash Ribbons and Trade King. On today's show, we talk about Charles's opinion on energy costs, potentially setting the price floor for Bitcoin. We talk about some of his favorite metrics for understanding market trends and much, much more. So, without further delay, here's my conversation with Charles Edwards.
2: You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by the Investors Podcast
0: Network. Now, for your host, Preston Pish.
1: All right. So here I am with Charles Edwards, like we said in the uh, introduction. And Charles, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me. Preston, it's great to be here.
1: We've been chatting for a long time now. And I'll tell you, I really pay close attention to your messages on Twitter, more so than probably most people that I follow. And the reason why is because you have a a real knack, especially for Bitcoin, of just kind of knowing where things are going. You have the ability to kind of really be able to have your Your thumb on the pulse and to really kind of understand in an unemotional kind of way where things are moving. So, my question, just to kind of start things off for you, is just how do you think about the valuation? Uh, We have tons of people from traditional finance that listen to the show. Talk to us about some of those ideas of like how you're looking at the value of Bitcoin.
0: Just before I do it, I, I must quickly say a big thank you to you and Stig. I think your podcast is amazing. I've been listening to it for years, almost every episode it's taught me a lot from investing and how I invest and do trading with Bitcoin even. And probably maybe more importantly for me at the time was the, in particular, a couple of episodes on entrepreneurship and, and making the leap of faith, I guess, into the unknown. And that really helped me start my adventure as well. So I owe you a great debt of gratitude. So it's we're honored. to be here.
1: Yeah, we're honored, <laughs> man. That, we really appreciate that.
0: So in terms of valuation, my background was value investing as well. So I was really into Buffett's approach, Buffett's essays, Intelligent Investor for probably ten years or so, and and went about and tried to go about an algorithmic approach to valuing stocks using a discounted cash flow approach and automating that, and did that for some time, a number of years, quite well. But I obviously called the Bitcoin bargain and wanted to take that valuation approach to Bitcoin because I could see the power of it, but. A lot of the analysis was really just more price or speculation-based, I suppose. There was quite a lot of good work done by Willie Will in particular, and I wanted to kind of build on that. So I looked at it from a fundamental perspective at the start, and now it's kind of grown into fundamental and technical analysis is, is how I kind of present that to people. But the reality is that it's grown to all sorts of information, um, anything which kind of comes into supply and demand. So four or five years ago, I thought technical analysis was rubbish. <laughs> I, uh, I actually was at a John Bollinger presentation, I left halfway through because I just thought it was hocus pocus. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the irony is that it's not, there's limitations to every method of investing and, and analysis you do, but there's a lot of power in, in different information. So I try and consider now anything from you know, technicals, momentum, fundamentals, on-chain, sentiment, whatever you call it. I think all of this information, any information is just an input into a supply and demand calculation in the, the day, which supply and demand sets the price for any asset. I would argue, even value investing, it's the same thing when you're you know, discounting cash flows and trying to come up with intrinsic value. You're basically saying, at this price, if it's worth $10, below that, the supply demand dries up because no one's willing to sell it because within a margin of safety, of course. Why would you sell it when the business is worth more? So you, you know that when you buy below that, there's a statistical probability that there's an upward pressure in price. So I tried to take that same approach to, to Bitcoin and basically consider anything which would set that from whatever it be on chain to, to price behavior to different fundamental inputs or just even correlations with the stock market as well.
1: So talk to us about some of these metrics that you're talking about, because back before the halving event, you and I, and to be honest with you, I took the idea completely from you, but I was just talking mm-hmm. about it a lot, which was the hash ribbons. This was an idea that you had talked about. There's many other ideas that you're kind of using various metrics for. So talk to us through some of these metrics. Maybe start mm-hmm. off with the hash ribbons and yeah. whether you find it valid today or it's only valid at certain points in the four-year cycle, talk to us about some of that stuff.:
0: Hash ribbons is probably what I'm most known for, one of my earlier indicators. And still today, I think probably the best long-term buy signal for Bitcoin. So I was just trying to come up with an approach to find out when a capitulation event in Bitcoin had ended. So every cycle, there's there's usually an 80 or 90% drawdown in draw the Bitcoin price. And there's been three or four of those type of events. And what I was trying to do with hashrooms in particular is identify when that was over to get the best buy opportunity. And it turns out that what when the price drops from the cycle peak, say 20, 30, 40% at some point, the inefficient miners start to struggle to be profitable, or they find other opportunities, maybe with higher profit margins in other altcoins or in other business ventures with their equipment. So they start to shut down, particularly the the miners with higher electrical costs. So the average Bitcoin mining electrical cost is around 3.5 cents per kilowatt. It varies widely. So some miners can do it for a cent, and, and they'll be fine no matter what. And some are like 5 cents or 6, and they will struggle when these events happen. So they'll potentially turn off. Some will shut down completely, go out of business, and you know, maybe sell off their Bitcoin to get out of that. And that's when you have that real collapse in price, another 30 or 40% type collapse. And when that is over and, and you know, you're left with the efficient miners and difficulty adjusts down and makes things a bit easier, things start to bottom out and creep back up. And when you see that reflected in the hash rate, and then also even better, a match with some price momentum, it's been a great buy opportunity. So that, that is kind of like a bottoming of the, I suppose, the supply. And in, in general, with a lot of the metrics I look at, it's much easier to identify undervalue and, and bottoming than it is to identify tops. And I can talk about that a bit more later. But yeah, it is because I'll say it now because when you it's like intrinsic value with a stock, when it's under that price, you know you have got a good deal. Whereas if it's if the stocks were ten dollars, it's now fifty. You don't know if it's going to go to a two hundred dollars or back to to ten.
1: Because of the emotional piece that's driving it, like it's too hard to to determine emotionally how much more.
0: Yeah, it's easier to identify the fair value, but not when the overvalue is over. I suppose so. With with um Bitcoin in particular, you you know it's one or two percent adoption globally. So the upside potential if there's a demand influx is huge. So you can go to massive historical levels of overvaluation very quickly, and it's harder to identify that top. It's, I'm not saying you can't do it. It's just you can do it much more accurately with the bottoms because you know that the supply is gone, and this is where you usually start to trend up. So for tops, there are, there are other metrics like looking at, like hotter waves, or, which is basically a metric of, of what percentage of the... Bitcoin miners have been holding Bitcoin for more than, say, two years is a is a good baseline. So the longer term, smarter money, and if they're selling or buying, is very interesting. Different premiums and discounts. So grayscale premium, for example, the stablecoin prints. So the the supply of of Tether in particular, USDT. Another one I really like is I wrote an article about it as well a couple years ago. Dynamic NVT, so network value to transaction. So it's like a P ratio for Bitcoin. And that one in particular, when that gets into a, a, an overextended red zone, it's often a good time to take off some risk. Same with the main multiple, which has actually worked really well the last few months, uh, which yeah. I know you're a big fan of. And when that's been above sort of 2.4, 2.5, that high leverage area, it's, it depends on your time horizon, but it's a good idea to maybe manage a risk a bit better. So, so probably I should cover with all these metrics. It really depends on your time horizon. So if you're investing for five years plus, there's basically only one metric, which is buy more. <laughs> Obviously, not investment advice, but any metric you look at one to two cycles onwards, it almost says everything is undervalued for Bitcoin. Like you'd, be, you'd be struggling to see it under 200,000 in five, six, seven years' time, Opinion, pending a, a huge anomaly or black swan type event we cannot foresee right now. When I tweet or a lot of the articles I write, it's usually looking at that sort of one to four year period or monthly level period of how can we try and manage those big down draws of 80%, when's a good time to buy? So that's another time horizon where a lot of these metrics I just talked about, I think, are, are valuable. And then if you want to go even more high frequency than that, which is some of the trading that we do at Caprioli and buying and selling on hourly type level, it's a different set of data and it's a completely different supply and demand model.
1: So somebody who would hear the previous part that we were talking about as far as it being difficult to understand a top because of the emotional aspects of the the market participants, I think a person would hear that and say, well, the same thing could be said about a bottom, but I suspect your answer goes to the electrical cost and miners stepping in. But I'm curious how you how you respond to something like that, considering you you should expect the exact same thing on the bottom.
0: I suppose the demand is infinite relative to the current price. So it can go 100x, whereas the supply isn't. That's the, probably the highest level summary. But yeah, you're right. Production cost is a great metric for that because it's, it's looking at the electrical cost of mining Bitcoin and the number of Bitcoin mined per day to, to calculate what is the price to mine a Bitcoin. And once Bitcoin price goes below that, it starts making sense to start shutting down your operations. There's kind of two levels there: production costs, at least in the article I wrote, considers more generally business costs, so it might be a rent and warehousing, profit margins, everything. But even below that there's electrical costs, so that's the price at which you literally wouldn't need to just turn off your Bitcoin mining rigs, because the price of Bitcoin has broken that threshold. That has never happened historically, until March 20 last year. <laughs> Where we we dipped under it for a few hours and you had the ultimate buy signal ever at three and a half, four thousand dollars. It's hard
1: to believe that was less than a year ago.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's in three days a year ago, yeah. <laughs> and that was a 70% drop in in a day, which has happened one other time for Bitcoin and extremely rare in that time of cycle. So an unusual event. So so when you get into those, you know, whether it be hash ribbons, production costs, or extreme levels of undervaluation there. Bitcoin and and considering where we think this is going, particularly in the macroeconomic environment we're in, it's a great buy signal statistically.
1: So Charles, you've written an amazing article on this whole idea that you're talking about as far as the electrical cost, and there being almost like a floor to the Bitcoin price based on these electrical expenses that the miners are producing. What's the name of the article? And then is there any other highlights that you would point out from that?
0: And I think that would be Bitcoin's production cost as uh, the article, yeah, I'm medium. So I've got a few articles there which go through a lot of the metrics we're talking about here in greater detail. So yeah, feel free to check that out and if you've got any questions people can shoot them through.
1: Are you firmly of the opinion? So when you look at the price chart and you see that it almost is like a perfect representation of Metcalf's law, especially when you look at the base and the bottom of the price mm-hmm. action over the last decade. You're of the opinion that the, that the miners and the energy to mine the Bitcoin is setting that floor. Would that be a correct assumption? Yeah.
0: Yeah. It plays into Metcalfe's law and also the Lindy effect and the domination that Bitcoin now has in this market. So you know, you'd be a bit more questionable maybe about these theories four or five or six years ago, but now it's very clear. As a number really of guests in your point, I've spoken about as well, that Bitcoin is the clear winner in this Decentralized monetary space. So you can, I suppose, trust in these metrics a bit more. You see it recently when we broke out a trillion dollars, and Bitcoin is the fastest growing asset to get to that, faster than Facebook and all the internet and these other other metrics. Do you see that
1: production cost pulling and governing the pop of the price? Or do you feel that maybe the price could just keep on running and it could become a a dominant global currency without the price, the energy costs? pulling it back down into a lower level?
0: Yeah. So I think it goes through cycles. I think right now, the production cost is not very useful for us because we're so far above it. The energy value is also less valuable. That's around 25,000. But the main thing with those metrics is it's mean reverting. So the energy value in particular, so that is a model which maps the energy input in joules almost one-to-one to Bitcoin. So it assesses the hash rates, the mining hardware efficiency and the supply growth rate of Bitcoin, and basically you calculate that all out, and it's just joules of energy in, and multiplied by a price multiple, and you get the energy value. Yeah, price has been reverted to that consistently for the last ten years. It's, I think, uh, yeah, it's something very powerful in my opinion. But it, it's, it comes back to your intrinsic value, like your value investing approach. When price is below it, it's a great buy. When it's above it, you know, you're in a little bit maybe extended territory and needs to be a bit more careful, or it, it provides less value. Historically, though, at the last cycles, prices extended pretty consistently, four to 500% above energy value at the tops. It doesn't mean it will this time, but that sort of region is where you want to be a bit careful. We're now at about twice energy value. And the things to look out for there are when hash rates and, and energy value just start to drop. That's when you probably want to start either managing risk or definitely not be buying when you've seen the network drop. And that's just one element. So there's the hash rates, which gives you insight to the miners, but you might see institutions start unloading coins onto exchanges, or you know, the mayor multiple might be really high as well. You really want to get a confluence of factors to, to line up and give you an insight of, as to whether the top may be in. But yeah, so certain, certain metrics are more useful when you're near fair value, so production cost, energy value, and other metrics are better when you're extended or, or maybe more valuable, such as main multiple or, or the N, dynamic NTV ratio.
1: Talk to us a little bit about your opinions on the macro backdrop, particularly in the in the past year, and how you think that kind of plays into the Bitcoin narrative.
0: So I think, as it gets, I guess, i have probably got a pretty similar view to you <laughs> in that probably the best man in the room to talk about this is Ray Dalio and his views on these cycles. So yeah, strong believer in in what he writes about where we are that we're near the end of a hundred year debt cycle, you know, and that's a period where there's a lot of debt restructuring, potentially currency collapse. And in the midst of that, we have Bitcoin appearing as the perfect candidate. <laughs> so I think that plays into Bitcoin's hands. At the same time, even before last year or last year's recession was like pretty obviously going to happen, a lot of the macroeconomic factors were, were screaming towards it, such as you know, the yield curve inversion, which has had a perfect hit rate. And you've now got this situation where we're at the end of a huge cycle. We've got recession, we've got lockdowns. And a struggling economy with you know, GNP down, stocks valued in gold is still down from 2018. So when I look at it, the, the macro, you see the an economy that doesn't look very healthy, is propped up with continual monetary stimulus, and you see stocks flying high. So I'm not here to say that stocks are overvalued because it's hard to say that when you've got this much printing, people need to put their capital somewhere and that's either you know, gold, Bitcoin, or stocks. Obviously, we think Bitcoin's a great choice there. But it, it's hard to know where that train ends. I think the optimistic scenario is the beautiful deleveraging that Dahlia talks about, where we hopefully have some great policies implemented, debt reduction by government, which lines up perfectly with monetary printing. But I'm personally not seeing that. I don't know if you've got any insights there, Preston.
1: Yeah. No, I'm with you. I think when you're looking at that, you're just saying I think this is where Ray gets the most grief from a lot of his followers, is I think people say this whole beautiful deleveraging thing that you talk about at the end. How does that work again? Yeah. <laughs>
0: like- yeah. It seems very optimistic. I'd love it to be true, but I, I, I think that it's going to, they can't stop printing. So the question is if they'll implement policies to manage the debt down, which I am not seeing. so I. For me, at some point, it's got to, it feels like it's got to buckle in terms of people. There'll be a switching point. We're seeing in Bitcoin every day with the price appreciation. But there'll be some point where people are like, well, this money's worthless, like it has happened at the end of every debt cycle. And then there's probably a more clear, obvious hyperinflationary type event, which I think we're seeing now in, in asset inflation, but not really in day-to-day living so much yet. So what does that mean, I think, for stocks? It means there's probably going to be a lot of volatility to the upside for sure. But if things collapse, also potentially to the downside, as we saw in Weimar Germany and a number of the other inflationary cases. For Bitcoin, I think it, it's great in the long term because it, it's the obvious contender to fiat currencies right now. In the short term, there is some risk in, in large down draws or, or collapses like we had in March last year. So it, it really depends on your time horizon. If you can't handle volatility like that, like You know, 30, 40, 50% drops, which could happen if the stock market drops 30% tomorrow, then Bitcoin's probably not for you. But if you're willing to accept that's possible and and, and stick around for a number of years, probably going to be a great option to navigating this economic situation we're in. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
3: Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right. Back to the show. So Charles, what are your thoughts on this
1: cycle that we're currently experiencing in Bitcoin? I'm assuming you believe in these four-year cycles, but give us your thoughts on that. And then where do you see us right now in in this bull run that we're currently experiencing?
0: There's probably two parts to the four year cycle and where we are now. So, I come into this year, I thought we were going to get to one or 200,000 at least. Wouldn't be surprised at all if we, you know, touched know, touch into 300. And that's based on about a year ago, long term forecast with energy values, pretty simple regression, but also a number of other metrics you look at, whether it be stock to flow, for example, or different things. Even Fibonacci sequences, it's amazing how, how closely, and there's something else you think was crazy, but the, how closely the, the, the long-term and and low-time frame price action of Bitcoin matches into different golden ratio sequences. So almost every Bitcoin top is about 17 or 18 times the, the Fibonacci retracement of the prior top. So that puts us around 300k. Yeah. So all the metrics kind of point to that region. And I, I think we will get into most likely 200k possibly higher and and from there the the bounds are probably dependent on economic stimulus. (laughs) I think the 25% inflation we've now had, which we never had before in terms of monetary printing will ratchet that up and more than more than a 25% factor. So the price appreciation we've had just in the last few months in Bitcoin is significantly faster than 2017 when there was, you know, maybe arguably more hype at that time, but closer to 2013. And I think the speed may be contributed or no, it probably is contributed from the institutional buy-in and the, the hedge against that monetary inflation. So I think we're going to that two or three region, but I would adjust that based on new information that may come out in the months. If we're getting, you know, four or five trillion stimulus, or who knows what in, in the next six, 12 months, that will probably impact it quite significantly. In terms of the cycles, yeah, I think we're still on the four-year cycles for now. So a learning for me has been in investing and trading to be careful of this time is different. <laughs> so it's easy to do that, particularly in hype and mania and top of cycles. Oh, we're never going to crash again and Bitcoin's a new thing. But usually, if it statistically happens one way, that those odds will continue. So a good example is the hash ribbons, for example. We had a buy signal in December and we've had four buy signals since I released that. And they're all up one, between 150 and 600% since that was released without any change. But the one in December, there was a good narrative going around that it's the end of the wet season for their miners, so the Chinese miners, uh, during the wet season, they relocate across the country, use hydropower because it's cheaper, and then after that, they relocate, and they have to obviously turn on and off their rigs to do that, and that causes the hash rate to drop, and you then get another buy signal. So it was speculation, and even I had a little bit of, I suppose, Nervousness about the strength of it because of that not being really a capitulation type event. But, and whether or not that narrative is true, it doesn't really matter because it worked. That may sound simple, but the hash ribbon or the hash rate assesses the entire network globally. So it assesses all factors. And that's the beauty of it in identifying those opportune times to buy. So, what I'm trying to say in in that story is that you should just trust the data until the data proves otherwise or unless the narrative is backed by some really strong data, like, you know, with the 25% monetary inflation we have now, which will probably impact some metrics. So it's better to kind of potentially use something which may work, which has historically worked really well until it, it maybe doesn't work quite well than it is to abandon it based on a narrative. So when, with that story, I'm trying to say, I think the four-year cycle will probably continue or that we should be very careful at the end of it um, for a large drawdown because you've, even if... We have widespread institutional adoption. A lot of the the large holders of Bitcoin have been around for five, 10 years. And even if it's self-fulfilling behavior, you will see that their movements of coins and how they react to these metrics and things will drive outcomes and it can be self-fulfilling. That said, I'll I'll revise that if we get massive stimulus or some kind of economic meltdown situation or change of events. But for now, I would bet on the four-year cycle. Looking out further, like 10, 20, 30, whatever years, I think those cycles will diminish. So the depth of them, it will kind of approach more of a exponential, flatter curve. So instead of the big dips, you get shallower dips and so on. Because of two reasons. I think the impact of the miners um, reduces their, their relative share of supply and also the, the net impact of any individual holder or entity it reduces. So historically, Bitcoin has been really retail-driven, maybe speculation-driven. Now we're getting more institutions in. The, the coin share is getting more distributed. So all of these factors, I think, reduce the impact of capitulation events or, or massive sell-offs or the impact of any individual party, I suppose. And the, the other key factor is that all of the key components of Bitcoin are knowable and pre-programmed. As we know, the supply model hash rate model, difficulty, whatever metric it is you want to look at on chain, it's all there for analysis. And I think in the long run, a lot of there's a halving priced in, right? So obviously it wasn't halving wasn't priced in and we had a huge appreciation. But at some point, whether it's five, 10, 15 years, whatever it may be, or one year, these events will get more and more priced in by institutions, I believe, and, and by the public in general and expectations, maybe whether it be stock to flow or any model, and that will smoothen the volatility. So in the long run, I think Actually, Bitcoin has a history of being considered volatile and 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 risky, but it's probably the least risky asset into the future, in my opinion. And it may be the least volatile asset in the long run as well.
1: Charles, do you see a possibility that a melt up in Bitcoin could happen after a certain threshold is breached, just as far as adoption rates go? So we we all talk about these four year cycles because that's what we've seen to date, but is there a certain point in the future where trust breaks down, erodes from the traditional system, and there's this all-at-once flood into Bitcoin that causes the price to melt up, and then it just really never comes back from that. It just, it just keeps on running, almost yeah. like a Germany paper mark chart from the 1920s.
0: Exactly. That's, so that's the one event I do think about. So as I mentioned before, how do you this volatile event that may happen in the market because of lack of trust. And there's probably a breaking point for people like, well, I don't want any of this currency. I I think we're quite away from that, but it could definitely happen. It's just, it's, you know, it's an event that happens once every hundred years and, (laughs) and we've never seen it on a global scale on a digital asset. So it's almost impossible to predict. It'll probably be obvious when you're in it. It's a tough one to to answer. I I think at some point, obviously, I believe in Bitcoin long term and in in the adoption, but I don't know if that event would be two years, ten years, or twenty years away. But I think with every day that we have economic conditions like now and monetary stimulus like now, it gets closer.
1: Let's talk about the Contango trade. So this is something that you've posted about. I've seen you post about what's going on there. First, explain what Contango is, and then. Talk us through why you think that this trade exists. Cause I find this trade to be kind of mind blowing, especially considering your cost of storage for Bitcoin is literally nothing or near nothing. Yeah. And when you think of Contango in like the oil market, a lot of the times it comes down to like the price of storing the oil because there's been an oversupply, starts getting built into the future prices, but this is, a, this is a strange one. So explain what it is, and then um, give us some of your thoughts on it.
0: Yeah. So I think you're talking about the, the long and short trade I posted about. So the one I specifically wrote about, and there's a number you can do, but this is the one I know a bit more about. If you have Bitcoin, you just want to make an interest-free rate or return on that. You can deposit it with a, a loan institution, BlockFi, Nexo, whatever it may be. There's lots of them now, And you get 50% of that capital back. If you've got 10 Bitcoin, you get five back. And with that, you can then short it on, on a perpetual futures contract, is the one I look at. And they historically have an average funding rate of 0.01% um, a day. So it's roughly compounded at 12% a year, and that's the baseline rate. But that rate varies. So it will often be above or below that. And it depends you know, on the market. So if it's a bear market, it, it might often be below because... It's based on the positions that traders are taking. But in a, in a bull run like now, and there's lots of demand for Bitcoin and lots of people speculating on price increases, it gets really high. So 10 times higher or five to 10 times higher is not unusual. So if you, if you do that trade, what you, you would deposit your 10 Bitcoin, you get five back for free, so to speak, with, with some interest rate to pay, five to 10% a year. And then you short that, the entire amount on a petrol contract and you get somewhere between 12 and probably 50 plus percent a year interest free on that on that trade where there's no risk of there's this platform risk that you know the exchange goes down you lose your coins all those I would argue smaller risks that we have today but in terms of the actual trade itself it's it's zero risk on and you get you lock in like somewhere between a 12 to 30 plus percent Interest on your on coins.
1: So in this, you're locking up coins. You're taking the ten that you originally started with. You're locking those up. You're getting five back. Then you're putting those into the market, and you're you're doing these activities that are putting coins into escrow instead of letting the coins come into the underlying buying and selling market, which, in my opinion, is driving is is an increase bid on the price because of supply suffocation of the coins. Do you see it that the same way or do you think that that it's still net neutral or is this kind of a narrative that you disagree with?
0: Yeah. So you're saying that because people are locking in their bitcoins, the supply is less and that is pushing price up a bit more. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think it's yeah.
1: it's actually almost like a second halving event.
0: Yeah, it could be. I, I don't know if that trade is that occupied yet. Probably, I think it is on an institutional level, and it will obviously it's a very attractive trade. So if it isn't now, it will be even more in the future. <laughs> so there's, I think there's a valid argument to that, and it, it's hard because that's one component of lockup. There's other lockups of, you know, just hodlers buying, you know, Michael Saylor buying, put it on his balance sheet. There's various levels of lockup. So for for that sort of supply side, it, it's great to look at things like the hodl waves or the net flow of coins from exchanges. So, which just gives you a bit more of a macro view of, of that phenomenon of supply drying up that you talk about. So good examples I, I tweeted as well not too long ago about Coinbase, is about 15,000 coins going out a week. So somewhere between half a billion and a billion a week, which is pretty obvious institutional buying. So yeah, we're definitely seeing that supply being sucked out of the system, at least over the weekly and monthly level. So yeah, a lot of it, I don't know the extent, but a, a good portion of it could be going into that trade.
1: What are your thoughts on the exchange, the number of coins that are being pulled off the exchange? Cuz relative to the previous four-year cycle, I mean, the quantities are it's drastic. It's kind of crazy mm. to see the amount of coins coming off the exchange. Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, it's really it's been really bullish. I think the rate has slowed down a little bit in the last weeks, in particular the the waves, the the percentage of of people who have held bitcoin for more than 2 years has kind of peaked near a 2017-type level and come down, and normally that drop happens around mid-cycle, so 30 to 50% through the cycle, which I'd argue is roughly where we are now um, based on historical uh, cycles anyway. And when that kind of starts to steepen, it's, it indicates people selling out. So it's a change of hands, right? I think a lot of it's going kind to of institutions, which will probably have stronger hands, but that trade is not as strong for me right now as it was three to four months ago when the, it was just straight down. It may continue to do that, but it seems to have slowed down for the time being on the shorter time horizon. Yeah.
1: So a lot of people on Twitter were wanting to know what are the big metrics you're looking at for where we're at right now in the cycle and probably the next two or three months from now.
0: We've talked about what do we talk about? hash ribbons, energy value, pressure hallways. Dynamic NTV. So we touched on that. It's the, the network value of Bitcoin. So the market, kind of like the market cap divided by the transaction value. So essentially, what, the value, what value is thrown to the network, kind of like a P ratio. And when that gets above the two year Bollinger Band, it, it, it signifies overvalue. So the, the, the price of the network is significantly higher than historical level from a transaction perspective. So we touched into that recently the other day, as well as the May multiple when we had that 30% drop. That's a good one to watch. Uh, Stablecoins also good. Large inflows or outflows in that it can trigger same or the opposite reaction of price. So I think a, a good description of that is when when there's large demand for, in particular USDT, which is the biggest one at the moment, the US dollar stablecoin. It indicates that people are either de-risking from crypto and getting out of it and into the US dollar, or there's a lot of new entrants coming in. So. Uh, and a common onboarding way is to convert your US dollar straight to USDT, for example. So what does that mean? People usually get out of Bitcoin or altcoins or whatever it may be when they're concerned or there's fear and they want to de-risk. And that often lines up with a bottom or a local price bottom. So when you see large relative increases in USDT or other stablecoins versus, versus Bitcoin, it's actually a good indicator that there could be some appreciation in Bitcoin, whether it be from the new demand or from the sort of bottoming factor of, of 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 existing players. And that's vice versa. You can use that as well as an indicator for when the, the topping process may be. Shorter term or, or probably less reliable is the grayscale premium. So we're seeing lately that I think about, right now it's about five the the price of grayscale stock is about five percent under the the Bitcoin price. So there's only a few data points there. So I'd be a bit wary with it. But every time it's been under five percent it which has only been three times, I think, in five years, the price has done very well over the coming months. So we're now at negative 5%. So I would suggest the next few months should be really good. And again, that's just a, a, an indicator with a few data points, but that's why it's really important to combine a number of these metrics to get you a, an overall picture of what's happening. So they're the ones I'd, I'd probably yeah, really pay attention to right now is the N, NVT, May Multiple, USDT, and different premiums.
1: What are your top three lessons that you would tell somebody younger just about trading or value investing, just investing in general? What are your top three tips?
0: That's a tough one on the spot. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think you have to love it. And if you really want to do it seriously yourself and not Get someone else to do it, so you could probably come back to Buffett's quote of "just buy an index" if you're not going to spend all, t- all your time on this. But no, if you really love it, then definitely go for it. And I think the more reading and research you can do, the better. So your podcast is a great start. Lots of lots of books, you know, Buffett books, trading books, and just getting get being a sponge and all the information out there. I think getting locked up in a camp of, oh, I'm only a value investor or I'm only a technical trader or I'm only this, it, it blocks you out to all the ideas that are out there. And it did for me for years. And now I, you know, you, logically you might say that doesn't make sense that this would lead to this price to doing that and therefore it can't be. And, and that's how you block it off mentally. But as soon as you say, no, let's, let's open that up. Why, why could it be? Or, or maybe it is just because it statistically is. Just being open-minded to everything and all information will give you... A huge advantage over, over everyone else who usually locks himself into one camp.
1: I totally agree with what you just said. Totally agree. Like, if, if I could have thought that I would be posting a chart on Twitter that had the MACD five years ago, I would have laughed at you. I would have said, There's, there's yeah. absolutely <laughs> no way that's ever going to happen.
0: <laughs> yeah. But yeah. here we are. And, and- most of the people who shoot you down or, or disagree with your ideas say, oh, that's crazy, that doesn't happen, or oh, it's like this. And it's, any closed-minded attitude like that is not going to help you grow in, this, in investing, I think. It's particularly in this world where every bit of data and information out there is now valuable.
1: We interviewed Bill Miller pretty early in our podcasting time. And that was one of the things I kind of distinctly remember after we were done talking to him because he was talking about incorporating technical indicators and things like that and I just I remember walking away from the interview just kind of like wow I'm I'm kind of surprised that here I am talking to this legend of value investing and he was talking to us about things that I just really was not expecting him to be bringing up. I share your sentiment so much there Charles. I really like that. Okay, what are your thoughts on DeFi, decentralized finance. And if you want to talk the NFT stuff, feel free.
0: I'll disclaimer this my expertise is in Bitcoin <laughs> and it's basically my whole life. So I don't, I take it with a grain of salt. I think that even though I spend my whole life in crypto, it's so deep. You need to be an expert in different areas. But I think there's, a huge amount of value in DeFi, to be honest, in the long term. I think it's right now what we're seeing is very similar to 2017 ICO phase where you got tons of new tokens and models and most of them will fail uh, or go to zero. And it's, I think it's two huge problems that any individual project has if it's genuine in that a startup and, and business model in, in this area in itself is really hard. And then actually decentralizing that, and handing over complete power and everything to a network is even harder. So doing both of them, the chances of success are very slim. And Bitcoin's the only one that's really done it to date to be fully decentralized. But having said that, the the concepts that have come out of it, I think, are really powerful. So, you know, even Bitcoin failed for you could say 10 or 20 or 30 years or whatever it may be, you know, BitGold and those different models that broke down because you couldn't get you know, you couldn't get a digital money, which was, there was only one version of it. And I think we're seeing that now with NFTs, for example, where there's, you can have millions of copies of it or on different chains. So it doesn't work now, in my opinion, but I think it will in the future in some format, which maybe we can't consider right now. But the DeFi, so DAOs in particular, so decentralized autonomous organizations, really interesting to me. So the idea that a business can be sort of tokenized, decentralized and run by voting as opposed to having command and control CEO person in charge, I think that model with AI on top, where you know people just vote on general direction or on general concepts, I think that would be really powerful in the future. I don't know what network that would run on. Maybe it's maybe it's uh, Ethereum, maybe it's one of those newer Polkadot or, or whatever it may be, other networks. Maybe it's Bitcoin eventually. But the concepts of it, I think, are really sound. I just wouldn't. I'd be very careful in, to invest in it now because you. Yeah, your chances of success are extremely small. In terms of NFTs,
2: I've struggled with them. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market.
3: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, back to the show.
1: Let me go back to that other the comment you just made. And it's mostly because of the probabilities that you assign yeah. to all these potential array of outcomes. You just don't have yeah. any type of confidence in any one of them.
0: Basically, I don't have any confidence in any of the altcoin being properly decentralized and having a genuine model to to build an infrastructure that works like this sustainably into the future. There are some tokens which I find interesting, like stock-like tokens, like Nexo I've written about in the past, where they're trying to model a stock, they pay a dividend. Most of the other tokens, they're trying to get value from voting rights and token burns. And and I tried doing a lot of different valuation approaches um, on token burns. I couldn't find any which justified the values. Of, of these altcoins in the past. But I think the dividend model is interesting where you try to tokenize a stock essentially, but there is a trust element and security, securitization regulation element, which is probably missing an audit element. So it's the Wild West and the probability, like I the probabilities I assign with success is extremely low. But if you do get one of them or two of them, you're going to do extremely well, I think. NFTs, yeah, I struggle with the concept of it. Because of the duplicity of yeah, so tokenizing art basically digital art but and and I think the, the the value of any even if you've got a great piece of artwork which is you know worth millions on one of these chains, I think the value of that artwork is intrinsically linked to the chain so there's you know dozens of different crypto chains out there which one will survive probably most of them won't <laughs> maybe it will be bitcoin we will have nFTs in the future we don't know so
1: and on that topic, so just so folks know, this, this NFT stuff, this is uh, non-fungible tokens is what we're talking about, where the idea is like, if you create, let's say you create a piece of digital art through encryption, maybe as, as websites are sharing that piece of art that the person who actually owns the digital asset, they could somehow be stream some type of, of value in the future for the use or the utility that it provides. On the internet. So I think a better example is kind of music. So if a person Mm -hmm. would create a song, that person who created it obviously owns it. As people listen to it, they get streamed money, Uh, they get streamed sats, satoshis, for the use of somebody listening to the song. And, And if you're dealing with an internet that has where the platforms where this music is getting streamed can determine who's listening to it who the owner of the song is through that non-fungible token, then the streaming of value can then come back to the, to the owner of it. My issue is the same as yours, Charles, which is just, we are way, way to the left of that being a reality based on how the, the internet is currently, the architecture of the internet and the encryption that is provided, and the platforms, how they would interact with these tokens. We're just, I mean, we're way far away from this being yeah. a reality. That's the concept.
0: Yeah, that, that was well described. I agree. Um, I think there's really intelligent and, and life-changing concepts in here, and probably that's music streaming or art, or art credibility sharing. And maybe there'll be a way to say, if you've copied this art, you can't, or you know, to link it so it shut down the network or it's future, like twenty
1: sats or whatever to, to yeah. do a copy of this JPEG or whatever.
0: Yeah, exactly. I can see a future where it's basically tokenizing everything, putting a price yeah. on everything, and giving the owner some ownership in that revenue model. And I can see that being happening in the world right in the future. But like you said, the way the world currently works, is so far away from that, and the probability of any individual chain being successful in that is really low. Obviously that's where the reward is as well. Like if you can get it now and it ends up happening, you're gonna do amazingly well. But it it's super low probabilities on any digital pick. The
1: copy paste element of media is just way too easy. I mean, okay, it's a song now, I could just grab my external recorder and, and record it, or it's a picture, I can take a picture of the picture. I just don't know how, how any of that will be enforced in the future. But uh, hey, you never know. <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I agree with you.
1: <laughs> Going back to one of your, your points there, one of your lessons, keep an open mind. You never know. I want to talk a little bit more about this GBTC premium. You hit on it a little bit earlier that it got to a negative five of the, of the value that's actually inside of the trust. You said this has happened, I think you said three times previously in the last five years?
0: Uh, sorry, it, it's been under 5%, so positive 5% three times in the last five years. And it got as low as I think negative ten percent a few days ago, and now it's negative five.
1: Yeah, so I think there's a lot of people concerned about what does this mean now that it's gone below the value that's actually on the underlying. Is this a trend that you see persisting in the future because they're now getting competition? What Mm. are some of your thoughts on that?
0: To be honest, I'm not sure. I think uh, the competition factor could be a, a relevant narrative that is. Suppressing it a bit, but I think that it comes back to my point of this time's different. When you've got relative undervaluation, it's usually a good time to buy, and when you've got overvaluation, it's usually a good time to de risk. So, when that premium has been as high as 20 25% historically, it's actually been a good time to to de risk or to you know, there's been some kind of local top in Bitcoin, whether it be just for a couple of weeks or, or whatnot until that resets, but it gives you a good indication of sentiment towards the asset. Yeah, I haven't analyzed it in any depth as to why it's so low right now, because for me, it's an interesting metric, but it only has a few data points. But nonetheless, it's probably a good idea to go with the data and not the narrative. So the data says it's undervalued. It's probably a good buy zone.
1: So Charles, when I think about a hurdle rate that's near impossible to outperform, Bitcoin's at the top of the list, especially over the last year. And uh your fund has outperformed this hurdle rate, correct?
0: To be clear, our, our, yeah, our model, you know, our algorithms, which we call Tranking, has. Uh, so last year, we, we got 680% with no leverage, so more than double Bitcoin buy and hold. And the fund, yeah, so that's exciting to say that we launched the US fund for accredited investors two weeks ago. So that's newly launched. I can't give you any uh, data on that, obviously. But yeah, so to date, we've been doing pretty well.
1: How long have you guys been active? And then I'm kind of curious, backtesting results prior to the time. So this, this 680% that you said is the last 12 months?
0: That was full 2020.
1: That was for 2020. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, when did you guys launch the
0: fund? It's been a big evolution. So we've grown very quickly. It started as we had these indicators and, and then... Um, there's been a subscription model which uh, people, it's been independently tracked. And we've got that's where that 680% comes from. And, and send, you know, for the last six or so months, we've been doing some managed accounts and now we've launched the fund. So, yeah, we have grown quickly and we're now managing over 40 million.
1: And if a person wanted to, uh, do they subscribe to Trend King? How does that work?
0: As a, as a business, we work with high net worth in investors. So if they've got, you know, we're licensed to, to, to manage their assets if it's over 100,000.
1: I'm kind of curious, when you run the model of your, your Trend King, back uh, during the, you know, the, the market peaked in 2018, went through the big sell-off, the 80% correction that everyone's well-versed on, how did the model perform in back testing during that period of
0: time? Pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell them, what, what, what were the numbers? Well, first thing is you should... Take backtest results with a grain of salt. Live, res- live performance is the better metric, in my opinion. Drawdowns of 30 to 40% aren't unusual in, in this sort of model. There's, there's always some drawdown. It's, you, know, you can't have a perfect sell the top by the bottom uh, model. But yeah, so it, it performed pretty well. The returns we're getting in real life are pretty comparable to the backtest results.
1: You basically doubled. So it was down 80%, you were down 30 to 40%. Am I reading that right?
0: I wouldn't line it up. So so, you know, there's a lot of the profit we make in those cycles is from shorting as Bitcoin is falling. So the volatility we get is often at different times to when Bitcoin is is experiencing volatility or or it can be in a different direction. Got it.
1: So Charles, what is a tail risk that concerns you the most?
0: There's probably two for me, and I know you've spoken about it a lot in your podcast. I look forward to this. It's the regulatory risk, which you know of, of outlaw, arguably, and then it's the potentially hacking risk or, or or breaking of the value of the chain in some format, whether that be a fifty one percent attack or, you know, some supercomputing, quantum computing outcome. I know there's plenty of arguments against that. I'm not saying they're high probability by any means. These are outlier, super low probability events. I don't even really worry about, but I think there's still some validity to them. So. We're seeing everything move in the exact opposite direction, as you've spoken about in your podcast, where it's being integrated, particularly in the US, into financial systems. It's banks allowed to use it, companies are holding it. And the longer and longer that goes on, the harder it is to outlaw. And then for any individual country to outlaw it, it, it's just a negative for them. The only thing I can see is if there is this cataclysmic event or hyperinflation event, which we talked about earlier, where you get sort of mass adoption or change, would it be possible for the, the G7 or G20 to all align and, and say, you can't have this anymore, or we're going to buy it off from you like the US did with gold? It's, it's super unlikely, right? Or that how they could unite and do that is super unlikely. But it comes back to being open-minded, I guess. So There's, there's always that small chance uh, that, it, that it happens. So That's probably the highest risk I would say, even though it's very small and seems improbable now. We never thought a year ago I'd be in lockdown for a
2: year.
1: (laughs) I don't want to turn the risk into a positive. I'm just kind of curious how how you would think about this. Let's say a major country does ban it, like the US. Let's say the US would ban it. I think that's probably the best risk scenario you could get. Hmm. Do you find that in the short term there's a massive price hit, but then, like we were discussing earlier, the energy cost? Draw, for all the remaining countries that haven't banned it, that energy cost that the miners supply, or that floor, that bottom that we we suspect is being supplied by the miner production cost, would it just bring the price back to whatever? Let's you know we're thinking hundred thousand. Let's just say hundred thousand is where we think the production cost is now based on the stock to flow. The U.S. comes out and bans it. The price takes a massive hit initially. Maybe it doesn't, but let's just walk through that scenario that the, that the price would take a major hit through a situation like that. Does that production cost that the miners supply bring the price back up to that 100,000 level, regardless of the, the country, the, the mega country that bans it?
3: I
0: think it, in short, it depends on the extent. So for something like the U.S., I think there is going to be a big hit because they're such a big player. You're such a big player in this, in this space, and the integration is so deep, probably. And there's also a lot of mining there now. So, the production costs, if all that stuff just got switched off overnight, would drop. So, the production costs may, may drop 30, 20, 40%, who knows? And the value would probably drop in line with it. it depends when and where in the cycle that would happen. So, there, there were, I think it would be a price hit. But I don't think any individual, if it's just an individual country, I don't think that's going to matter anymore long-term. Like you say, I think you know, there'll be a hit short-term, whether it be three, six, 12 months, but unless everyone unites, the incentive structure of Bitcoin is aligned that it's better for the other countries if they support it. So it's hard to see this playing out unless there is a unified effort against it, which we're just not seeing any indication of right now.
1: Okay, Charles, last question. What is the thing that you look at on Bitcoin that kind of is the most impressive thing to you, or the thing that you think so many people miss that is the secret sauce, or something that just like stands out to you?
0: It's nothing special from a Bitcoin perspective. It's just the the supply model, the the halving event, inflation model, halving of supply model, where it's now on par with gold, and it will be the hardest asset in the world and the way that that is so decentralised, fungible, and instantaneously transactable. People miss, miss the miss the, the power of that because they just see the volatility, but they don't realise that if Bitcoin is going to be the success that we think it is, and, and all signs show that it's going this direction, and it does become a reserve currency or at least equivalent with gold, we've, we're heading towards $10 or $100 trillion or more. So you can't go from zero to 100 trillion, or we're now 1 trillion, you can't go 100x without volatility. So people dismiss it because of that volatility, but it's an essential ingredient of getting there. It's like any startup going from zero to a billion dollars, except this is the biggest asset in history doing the same thing. So I think that's what people miss. They dismiss it because of volatility, but the power of it in being the the future currency and, and reserve asset of of the world is you just can't ignore it. I think, especially in this environment we're in today.
1: Charles, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. I'm glad we were able to do this, you know, face to face here on Skype at yeah. least. And uh, man, I've been following you for a while, and can't thank you enough for making time to come on the show. Give people a handoff to uh, some of your stuff, and then I'm going to have all this in the show notes. I'm going to have your energy article there, Bitcoin's production cost article in the show notes. But give people a handoff to some other stuff.
0: Thank you so much, Preston. It's always great to catch up and talk about Bitcoin and the market dynamics. And it's yeah, been a pleasure to be here. You can uh, follow me on Twitter. It's at caprioli.io. So name our business, caprioli. And our website is the same, caprioli.io. So you can reach out there and happy to, happy to chat.
1: Charles, thanks so much for your time.
0: Thank you, Preston.
1: Hey, so thanks for everybody listening into the show. If you enjoyed the conversation, be sure to subscribe to the show. On whatever podcast app you're using, we really appreciate that. And if you have time, leave us a review. So thanks for joining us this week, and we'll catch you next Wednesday.
2: Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to the InvestorsPodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.